steps into it. Pass is caught. Diggs! Sideline! Touchdown! Unbelievable! Vikings win it! Hey, welcome back to the Unbelievable Podcast. I am BJ Rydell, back here with my guy, Drew Mahold. And today, we are going to continue our discussion on Dalvin Cook, uh, as we've seen a couple of uh, updates in the news that have um, come to light and shedded maybe a little bit more information on the situation that the Vikings have at hand with their running back currently uh, withholding services, if you will, uh, while he tries to get a new contract. So we'll talk a little bit more about him. Uh, the next thing that I wanted to do today is I wanted to talk about the Wilfs and the Vikings ownership and just uh, have a discussion about the impact that they have on the Vikings. And here's why I wanted to do that. Earlier this week, you may have seen that Ziggy Wilf and uh, I believe Mark Wilf released the news that the Wilfs would be donating $5 million uh, to fight or, for, or excuse me, in the name of social justice, uh, which I just which is awesome. And I started thinking to myself, well, the Vikings actually have a pretty excellent ownership group and for as much you know crap as we give people like dan schneider i don't think we recognize just the impact that a good ownership group can have so we'll talk a little bit about the wilfs and then we will finish up with our continued prospect analysis with second round pick uh, ezra cleveland so that is the game plan for today's show let's start it off here with dalvin cook uh, so to catch you up to speed what we discussed last time was the idea of what was reasonable for a contract we had known at the time that Dalvin Cook had rejected the Vikings' initial offer, and that was kind of his response that he wanted a contract that was, you know, I guess reasonable, which we spent a fair amount of time discussing on the previous episode. What we know now is what Dalvin Cook's thoughts on that term are. So he has effectively defined reasonable, and whatever it was, it was whatever, excuse me, whatever is reasonable is not what the Vikings offered Dalvin Cook in this latest update. Right, so it sounds like he's kind of, he said, I think it was what, he felt disrespected, or somebody in his circle um, basically released that statement and said Delvin Cook felt disrespectful, and that's kind of, or disrespected, and that's why he is holding out. So, um, and, you know, I I get it from his perspective, when you see McCaffrey get a ton of money, when you see um, Le'Veon Bell get a bunch of money, even after holding out for a whole year, uh, so you see, he's seeing guys at his position get paid, um, even though more and more evidence suggests that teams should not do that. Right. Uh, he is still uh, seeing other teams pay running backs large amounts, and so he thinks he deserves that because, according you know, comparing to his peers, Zeke Elliott, McCaffrey, uh, Le'Veon Bell, he's up in that rank, uh, in that elite upper echelon, if you will, of running backs. So of course he wants that money, and of course he's going to try everything he can to get there. Um, but you know, what's the, the new deal and the CBA, something about, you know, if you hold out into training camp or hold out into the season, it doesn't accrue. Right. So like, right. He's the Vikings have all the leverage here based on that, because if he holds out, doesn't get his deal, the, the year does not count against his contract. So next year, uh, in 2021 would still be essentially the 2020 season of his deal. So 
he, I mean, I, I get what he's doing. I get that he wants that. Unfortunately, it's, the cards are just very much stacked against him to get the amount of dollars that he wants. Uh, of course, unless the Vikings are willing to oblige and mm-hmm. sort of, uh, you know, like we said in the past before, pay him for what he's already done. Uh, that right. seems like what some of these big running back contracts are now because running backs hit their prime, you know, 25, 26 years old. Dalvin's about there. Um, and then once you get up into the upper 20s and the 30s is when, you know, evidence shows running backs kind of tail off and their productive production drops. So we'll see how it goes. I get Dalvin wanting to get his. And obviously we have to understand the Vikings perspective, too, of not wanting to risk the future entirely. So it'll be interesting to see how it pay, plays out. Uh, but that's what we're, I think we're at right now is Dalvin feels, quote unquote, disrespected. And uh, it seems like they're pretty far apart as of now. But again, the Vikings had the leverage here. Yeah, that uh, that question of leverage, I feel like, will continue to drag on until we you know, ultimately reach a conclusion to this contract saga, because Dalvin Cook is one of the few running backs who you can argue, you know, there's probably eight to ten of them, um, have have any semblance of leverage in com- in contract negotiations. There just simply aren't that many that have that ability to use their body as you know, saying, I need more money if you want me back on the field. There just aren't enough running backs out there. I mean, think about if any of the 49ers running backs or, you know, if Mark Ingram or, I don't know, name your running back that isn't Christian McCaffrey or Ezekiel Elliott. If they tried to hold out, the team would probably just say, all right, we're going to go with our backup then. Because the the response just doesn't, it doesn't merit the amount of money that these players are asking for the most part. Because think about it. I mean, how many teams – when you go to draft draft your fantasy running back, how many how many running backs are there that you feel confident are going to get 250 carries a year? Probably right. I mean, it's, not It's impossible to expect that now. There's so many teams doing a timeshare. There's so many uh, – there was the injury possibility of, of guys. So it's right. – like, there are very few true workhorse backs. Right. And so it, those it, are the guys who have the leverage, right? Those true workhorse guys. And Dalvin Cook – Despite the medical history, which is a glaring red flag, let's just make that clear for those of you who have been screaming at people like me talking about Dalvin Cook and not, you know, shedding enough of uh, an interest, I suppose, on the medical history. I I hear you. Like, that's the biggest thing that he's got against him right here. And that's why effectively in my mind and seemingly in yours as well, he doesn't have enough leverage because any leverage he has as a bell cow is effectively negated by that medical history. Because he can't guarantee, based off of his past history of success, that he's going to be on the field for 16 games. So we can't guarantee we're ever going to see a 1,200-yard season again yeah. just because we can't guarantee we're going to get 16 games from this guy. That's that's just facts, and I'm sorry about that because I would love to see Dalvin Cook get paid, but it's just not reasonable given his service time. And the amount of – since he came into the league, I mean, he has de- dealt with two major injuries – Right. And then a bunch of other nagging ones. So, well, let's keep this in mind, too. 2017, he goes down week four. Right. Vikings fall to four and four or excuse me, two and two at that point. Mm-hmm. They win 11 of the final 12 games, get the two seed with him on the bench. So yeah. that's and that's not, you know, that's one angle I don't think we discussed too much in the last show was, you know, the Vikings, the most success that they've had the last three years uh, since he's been on the team has been without him on the field. Now, that's not a direct correlation, and I don't think him being on the field is – on the field is a direct correlation to maybe Kirk having slightly better numbers either. 
um, we'll get into that in a little bit here uh, uh, as well. But that's just something that I noticed and we didn't really talk about on the last show was the 2017 Vikings were, you know, they were dominant for most of the season. And Dalvin Cook was, when the Vikings had Dalvin Cook on the field, they were 2-2. Two and two. And then they went and won 11 of the final 12 games that season, earned the two seed, won a playoff game at home without Dalvin Cook. So let's let's investigate that a little bit more. Investigate Dalvin Cook's value relative to the rest of the team. Because this is something that we haven't discussed yet within the idea of paying a running back, right? If you want to expand the conversation and just come up with a default number for all of your skill positions and that's how much money you're going to pay, say, your quarterback, running back, wide receiver one and wide receiver two, between those four players you need to – I don't know what this number is, but this is, you know, theoretically, if you pay the quarterback less or you play a wide receiver less, you could, you know, again, you could play the running back a little bit more. If you're going to group all of these skill positions or, you know, uh, I suppose like these these offensive positions that have an immediate factor on the outcome of the game, then you could, you know, you could find a way to argue that Dalvin Cook deserves more money. At the same time, you got to factor in the, you know, he's been on the field and granted in diminished capacity a number of times for a total of 28 games over the last 36 for the Vikings. Excuse me, the last 48 for the Vikings. That's that's concerning. And especially when you're talking about leverage. Okay, so he says, you know, if he's going to be on the field for what, what does that equate to? Um that's probably 60%-ish. About 10 games. Game, <laughs> averages out to about 10 ga- 9, 10 games. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to pay you a, a fraction, about 60% of what you think your average annual salary should be, which ends up equating to about $9 million. Yeah. So, well, that's what he th- – I mean, he's, if he's thinking 15 mil a season, right? then yeah, about 9 mil a season based on the availability. Now, we should note the injuries he's had, like – Injuries are – I'm not a big believer in a guy being injury-prone necessarily. Like, injuries are just freak injuries that just happen. And most right. of the time, I think it's not really something that can be controlled. But the point still stands that he's playing running back, which is the position itself. Injured, the position itself is prone to injuries, right? It's not necessarily the player individually, but the position itself is prone to injuries happening. That's Especially why – Especially if you have that injury history, though, because that's just going to make – I mean, do you think – just an honest question. Do you trust Dalvin Cook's knee more or Christian McCaffrey's knee more to hold up over a 16-game season? Oh, yeah, McCaffrey's. That's McCaffrey kind of right like – yeah. I'm not – like I don't want to – I'm with you on this. I'm kind of arguing off of the point you just made that I'm not predicting that Dalvin Cook is more likely to get injured in the future. However, he does have the injury passed, which suggests that he could be injured again in those same areas because they're probably just not as likely to hold up because they're anatomically repaired. Let's just, I mean, I'm not a science guy. I'm not a doctor. But generally speaking, if your knee has to be repaired, that knee is not going to be as strong as it was when it wasn't repaired. Yeah, well, tell that to Adrian Peterson. I, I know. And I know someone's saying <laughs> I know, that. I know. But, like, I'm, just, I'm speaking – I get, like, he's a demigod, Okay. Most human beings. Right. Okay. So if he's going to be on the field for 60% of the time over there, and and really that's an unfair average, it's more like you can probably feel confident that he'll be on the field for 12 games for sure. Okay. Let's say that's the number. 
how much of an impact does he have in those 12 games? Like, how much of an influence does his success and his ability to be a, you know, a possibility of touching the football on every single play, how great of an influence does that have on the Vikings winning games? So we've looked at a couple of these advanced statistics or whatever, the next generation numbers, and Delvin Cook does have an influence but is it enough of an influence to justify paying him $10 million or more? So, yeah, now here's from Next Gen Stats today, actually. And the problem I have with this, first of all, is that they kind of use passer rating, which I don't love, right? Because they equate all interceptions the same. When right. you look back at last year, the one interception that even jumps my mind when we discuss this is like the one that I think Kirk threw against the Eagles where it bounced off of Diggs' helmet. So right. that is the that Diggs was wide open on the sideline and it hit him in the helmet and it was picked off. And that interception is penalized the same as Kirk's interception against Green Bay, where he threw it to double coverage in the back of the end zone. Uh, but with that said, you know, the passer rating for Kirk Cousins when Dalvin's on the field, 114.3 with Dalvin off the field, 94.8. And that's largely because the touchdown interception ratio with Dalvin on the field was 16 to one. And with Dalvin off the field, it was 10 to five. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's it's significant. Uh, now we should mention, so our guy Luke Braun, uh, who does the Locked On Vikings podcast, looked at all these and it kind of broke down each interception. So the first interception was a tip pass at Lambeau. Tip pass. Right. Is that Delvin's fault, really, that the pass was tipped? Perhaps Probably not. not. Probably not, right? Uh, the One in the end zone at Lambeau was with Dalvin Cook on the field. If you want to be, you know, you can fit the narrative how you will. But the Dalvin Cook was on the field for that one. Then you have the fluky, uh, you know, tipped pass off Del- of Stefan Diggs' helmet. Um, the Seattle one, a contested catch to Stefan Diggs, sort of a 50-50 ball that he lost. Um, you have a, a screen pass tipped, uh, didn't see the defender there uh, against the Chargers. So a screen pass, uh, I mean, sure, you can maybe – argue that that but also that would mean people are paying more attention to alexander madison i don't know uh and then you have uh, kevin king jumping up and getting a jump ball as well with digs down the field on the monday night game so looking at those one by one like it seems i don't know i have a hard time believing okay dalvin cook not being on the field is the reason that those other five interceptions happened i don't know that it's just so this becomes I don't a like, question i don't like passer rating as a stat i don't like the touchdown interception box score numbers as a stat because this it goes right. back to you know the teddy days where right. he had no interception touchdowns in 2015 and nine interceptions but you know five of those came off of receivers hands and then he didn't throw touchdowns to the goal line because they handed off to peterson every time and stuff right. like that so this ultimately comes down to the question of the the age-old question and a fan favorite question whether they know it that they're discussing it or not correlation versus causation right yep so how much correlation is there between Dalvin Cook and Kirk Cousins' passer rating? Based off of the influence that the interception stat alone has on passer rating, you have to think that that might be a product of causation and not correlation. There's not a correlation between Dalvin Cook being on the field and Kirk Cousins throwing interceptions. Now, passer rating is not the only true reflection of off how – Kirk Cousins plays offense, of course. This has a this has you know two sides to the story, right? We don't have to like passer rating, even if it looks good for Kirk Cousins, but there are pieces that Dalvin Cook adds to 
the offense that maybe are unquantifiable or we're not smart enough to understand because we just aren't coaches or, you know, there are a number of elements that Dalvin Cook brings to the game that we simply can't bring down to one number and get a good number, you know, good justification for him being on the field. One thing I can guarantee you is that the Vikings are a better offensive football team when he's on the field, no matter what. Always. Okay. I know that's simple and I know that's a broad statement, but it's true. The Vikings the Vikings are a better team when Dalvin Cook can possess the football. So we know that. <laughs> so now that we know that there is some level of correlation between Dalvin Cook being on the field and the Vikings playing better offensively, whether that's Kirk Cousins' boosted performance, more or less attention on wide receivers like Adam Thielen because they have to account for the fact that Dalvin Cook might get the ball. I mean, there are little things like that, but how much? And – yeah. There's I don't no, have the there's that no question. way to quantify it. There's no way to quantify it. That's the that's the the troubling part for both sides in this negotiation because um, if we like, can get a number, you know, the Vikings. The problem is well, the problem first of all is that the Vikings have this offense so heavily predicated on Dalvin Cook last season and probably going into 2020 that he's in this position to have some sort of leverage where a uh, you know a modern 2020 offense built on the past like it should be there wouldn't be this problem where the running back is so is getting the ball, you know, sometimes 25, 30 times in games that shouldn't be a thing in 2020, but it is with Dalvin. Uh, and then, you know, you look at like breaking it down the simplest terms of what matters wins and losses. Still, I don't like using wins and losses for any player, even quarterbacks. Like I, I still don't even like QB wins as an argument, let alone running back wins. Um, so, you know, 2017 Dalvin's out Vikings went 11 to 12. 2018, Dalvin's healthy most of the season. Vikings missed the playoffs this past season. Dalvin is involved a little bit more in the offense, but still not healthy all, every every game. Um, but the Vikings do lose the big one Monday night against the Packers without him, and they get smoked in that one. So it's there's there's evidence to both sides. Um, but my my biggest argument, the one I like the most, is just looking around at the, at the rest of the league, which teams have stud running backs, which ones are getting paid. You know, teams are paying running backs the most and how they're doing, you know, Panthers with McCaffrey, you know, <laughs> five and 11 last year, right? Uh, the Giants are riding Saquon Barkley. haven't paid him yet. Probably going to Giants. Are they any good? Not really a threat. The Cowboys went eight and eight last season with the most, perhaps the most talented roster in football, right? And they paid Zeke a bunch of money. Now they can't pay their quarterback. Le'Veon Bell, the Jets, same thing. They went seven and nine, I think, and that was just scraping by to seven and nine with a backdoor kind of win streak at the end of the season. And uh, his production has dro- dropped dramatically since he joined the team. I, that, that's the biggest argument I, I see. I don't see a team paying a guy at running back a bunch of money and then it working out for the benefit of the team, the success, especially when you have a quarterback on a massive deal already. So ultimately... Again, we arrive at the conclusion that Dalvin Cook feels disrespected. The Vikings probably rightfully are offering him a contract that is more a product of not the top five best running backs in the NFL, but more how the top five organizations in the NFL operate. And unfortunately, I don't see either side really budging from that unless we get a further update or there becomes another area that one side can reclaim leverage on and unfortunately i don't see that dynamic changing the one that you just stated right there that dalvin cook is a focal point of this offense he's going to hang on to that as long as he's healthy right 
Vikings are trying to be a winning organization and follow suit with the teams that have best uh, allocated funds on their cap. I don't see Rob Brzezinski budging there. So this is a true stalemate. I th- and I think we might see this one drag on a lot farther than, or excuse me, a lot longer than we would like. But that's where we stand today. Dalvin Cook, Vikings, true stalemate. He feels disrespected. The Vikings feel like they're doing what's warranted given the circumstances and the recent history at the position. So I guess we'll see. We'll look for more news updates. And I'm sure this will, like I said, this discussion will probably drag on longer than all of us wanted to. But nevertheless, let's jump into something else here. Uh, let's talk about the Vikings ownership. And this, I know this kind of comes out of nowhere, but I'm going to, I'm playing off of the headline, like I said earlier, that the Wilfs committed to donating $5 million to, for social justice and to fight, you know, uh, racial bias and all these problems that we're having uh, in our country right now surrounding the George Floyd situation. Uh, so that is just a headline, right? It's just a piece of information. The ownership did this. I want to branch out a little bit further and dis- and discuss just how great of an ownership group that the Vikings have, right? So in my lifetime, I've lived through two ownership groups that I can truly remember, and that's Red McCombs and now the Wills, okay? I understand that Roger Tiedrich was before that. I don't know anything about him, not even going to touch that. What I do know is that Red McCombs is an eh owner, and the Wills, as far as I know, have been amazing, in every respect. So why does this matter in the first place, right? Your ownership is the, has a trickle-down effect to everything that happens on your team. Obviously, Ziggy Wilf isn't out there you know, taking handoffs from Kirk Cousins, but he is in charge of the business formation of your entire group, your entire organization, and he's also responsible for making sure that your organization has a, a responsible reputation, if you will. These are two things that he has been able to accomplish in tremendous detail and consistently since the Wilf ownership group took over in 2005. And that's not something we can say about every other team in the NFL. And I feel like that warrants some recognition. It does. It does. And especially now where um, there's so much going on, right? And, you know, to be able to handle it the way they have, and they've been super generous about you know, donating to the right causes, uh, things of that nature. And um, it's it's easy to get behind them is, is bo- what it boils down to. And that's always been how it is with them. And even now, you know, one example I will use here is the move to have training camp in Egan. You know, I think I, I it's surprising to me looking back that like the people in Mankato aren't or weren't as upset. And I think it's a lot of that is because of, the way it was handled from the top down and, you know, kind of nicely, but correctly putting, okay, we need a new facility. We have this state of the art thing being built in Egan where we're going to practice all the time. Uh, it makes sense to have everybody there, blah, yada, yada, yada. Um, I think that was really well done by them. And, and, you know, as they keep like they're, there's, you know, it's, it's not about the reputation to me. Like it, it you know, the reputation is one thing, what people think of you, all that, but they are actually, you know, talking the talk and walking the walk, if you will. That's what's different. And so it's good. I mean, I, I like we can use the Redskins as an example. Right. You know, Redskins, that was, that was the next thing I was going to say. The Redskins franchise is, uh, is struggling. And, uh, you know, 
I, Dan Snyder is Dan Snyder. That's fine. Um, and it just seems like it, it has a ripple down effect. Now they've got the issue with, you know, is their, is their team name something that should be a thing, the Redskins, or should it be something different? Anything and else, maybe? And Dan Snyder has not really addressed that or seemed willing to listen to that argument. Um, so, yeah, it, it's I don't have a lot more to say on the, in the wills other than it's 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 very easy to root for them what they've done with the Vikings um, despite you know the it's the Vikings aren't an easy franchise to to win over the fan base anyway right because there's a lot of history of losing and not a lot of success and it seems like they've been able to do that um, and with the new stadium moving the, the facility to Egan and they've been really success, successful as as you know. A businessman in the area, but they've been able to, at the same time, be great philanthropists as well to the right people, the right causes. So, uh, hats off to them, and I will continue to root for them. So, kind of, when you think of just the average fan, like myself or you or most of our listeners, right? Uh, what do you want from your ownership? Because really, let's just be honest here, you don't really care about the ownership, right? You care more about the executives no, and that's, who are calling that's, the shots. Let's make that clear too. I don't even like like I'm not 100% educated on right and everything that they do. You know, and most like, people I'm, aren't. I, I'm, I, I imagine that I'm with the majority on that. Uh, I don't know them too like that well, um, but. It, all, everything says that they're, you know, promoting the right things, supporting the right things. That's kind of, yeah. You know, when you ha- when you're in that position of power to support the right causes and invoke change, and then you do it, you know, that I think that carries a lot of weight. Absolutely. And then, so in addition to doing quote good things, right? You know, uh, being involved in the community, doing you know what you can to bring about, like you said, change or just justice in general or working towards just a better world right like all those things are those are all good things for any ceo right like that's what you want from you know at your job you want your ceo to do those types of things as well you know give you time off when it's deserved right or you know uh put money and resources behind causes that are truly truly inspiring change or a better world that's what you want from any rich person Okay. now what you want as a Vikings fan from your owner isn't to touch the football, isn't to meddle in the operations, especially if you don't know anything about football. So like the things that the Wilfs don't do are also very important. Right. So like I know that Jerry Jones is a Hall of Fame executive, but like either you're going to be a personality, an owner or an executive. Like pick one. I know that's annoying for Cowboys fans. The Vikings don't have to deal with the Wilfs meddling between finances and personnel decisions. There's like a very strict mm-hmm. line that's drawn there so that the business operations are separate from the football operations. And that's very helpful for people like us who just don't want to see, you know, we've seen so many teams ripped apart by stupid ownership, whether it's financial decisions or like it's just kind of questionable financial decisions, whether it's doing something not so great in terms of the yeah. image of or your it's franchise. Like, right. Clearly treating a player incorrectly. Like, and that's one thing too, we should know what this Dalvin thing. Like I am very confident the Vikings are going to find something that, you know, Dalvin still maintains respect of the team. Like that's still, right. oh, yeah. he feels right. disrespected now. He's going to, that respect will be earned back. And I feel like that because of how 
this team has handled those decisions in the past with contract extensions. And I think that's a respect or that's a result of, uh, you know, a, how the Wolves handle things at the top. And I think that has kind of had that trickle down effect to the way like Robert and Rick Spielman treat the players. Right. And then ultimately the final thing. So you want them to make savvy business decisions where you don't even have to think about that element, right? You want them to treat your players well, treat the system well, uh, treat the organization well. Those kind of those things are sort of like be, will be listed underneath your job responsibilities, right? And then finally, you don't want them to embarrass you. And this is something that you don't think about unless it actually happens, right? You don't think about ownership in you know are they how do they represent me the fan until they truly embarrass you? And you may not think like you might be thinking that like oh, I'm speaking high and mighty. No, no, no. no. These people that own your favorite organization, it, it becomes extremely hard to root for an organization when they are constantly embarrassing you. Think of New York Knicks fans, for example. Whether it's him yelling at the fan and saying, you can't ever come back to my stadium because he can't take criticism from a random pedestrian. Or it's like Dan Snyder, unwilling to even recognize that the title of his franchise is a racial slur. These are embarrassing things that as Minnesotans or as in uh, maybe not necessarily non-native Minnesotans, but people who have inherited their history from Minnesota, don't even need to think about it with the Wills. And it just doesn't get talked about enough. The fact that I can be a Vikings fan without having to worry about something stupid my owner did. Like Jim Irsay, for example, if you're a Colts fan. He has legendary memes memes created about him. And I'm not saying it doesn't add to the fun or the content, but the dude seems like he's always drunk. Like, do you want that as your owner? That's not something you have to think about with the Wilfs. It's just like, it's one of those things where like, if once you see, for me, once I saw this headline, I was like, okay, let's think about all the other good things that the Wilfs do. And while a lot of that list is composed of things that they don't do, you look at other owners and you're like, okay, you have so much money, you have so much power, you have so much public support, you could do some really questionable stuff, and they don't. And that's yeah. why I love the Wolves. I'm a I'm a big fan of the direction this team has gone, and I'm a big fan of kind of the like the uh, business character, if you will. I, again, I'm not a business guy. You guys know that, but the business character of this organization is a trickle down effect of you know of Ziggy, Mark, and Leonard Wilf. And the entire organization reflects that, and that's that's what you want to see. So Yeah. Well, I think part of it, too, is you can even use that as an example, like, you know, Kirk, Anthony Barr, these guys taking less money to play for yeah. play for the Vikings, up in the cold where the, you know, income tax is probably higher. Uh, like, it's not, it, it, on that perspective, right, for a player, income tax is incredibly high in Minnesota. The weather sucks for five, six months out of the year. And these guys are taking less money to play here. I have a hard time believing that the ownership has, you know, only a little to do with that. I think it's a big deal. Um, and that start again, everything starts from the top up. So yeah, I, I think it's probably a good, a good thing to hammer this point down. And, and, you know, let's just make it clear. Nobody's freaking perfect, right? Like they could be probably, it, they're doing a lot. They're doing a ton. Okay. Right. And I hate this argument that like, you know, you saw like, Zuckerberg, oh, he's only given 25 million. That's point blah percent of his net worth. Oh, but so look, okay, yeah. okay, like all right, he's giving 25. Somehow that's a bad thing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> all right, folks. So uh, 
shout out to the Wilfs, and let's move on to Ezra Cleveland now and talk a little bit about this player that the Vikings recently brought in during the NFL draft this past April. So Ezra Cleveland is your newest offensive lineman. He's a big offensive tackle, athletic offensive tackle. Uh, this was a you know a, a type of player that I think a lot of people were targeting, given the kind of the revamp of the offensive line, the style and success of Brian O'Neill, and how that translates to potentially how the Vikings will view offensive line prospects in the future. It certainly seems like Ezra Cleveland, at the very least, takes a lot of characteristics from Brian O'Neill. Right, that's exactly what it seems like they're doing: a zone blocking offensive tackle can move pretty well, you know, laterally, right? Um, and he, when he gets to second level is when he's really good. Uh, so, again, in that zone scheme with the running uh, in the running game, that's when he's going to be really good and get downfield. Um, it, it's it's a, the closest thing to Brian O'Neill in this draft that you could have found, and that's easily the case with, with Cleveland. So it seems like they have, you know, a template that they want, an offensive tackle. They want somebody that's taller, quicker, not necessarily the – largest in terms of weight right but a guy that can move um and it seems like cleveland's that next guy that i don't know if he's going to be at left tackle if he's going to be at right tackle if he's going to be at guard maybe to start who knows with rally reef still in the mix um but it seems like that's the guy that they want they want another brian o'neill and they hit they hit on brian o'neill and they saw what they liked and not a lot of uh you know that pick wasn't loved necessarily by the entire Vikings fan base. This one's received a little bit more uh, in a positive, on a positive light, I think because of the way O'Neill worked out. Very similar player. Uh, we'll talk about the actual positives and negatives of his game, but it seems like that's what they're going for. It worked last time. I have no reason to doubt it again. Okay, so let's talk about the, the basic information, right? The stuff that you can get from just Googling the name Ezra Cleveland. Stands at six foot six, 311 pounds. He's on the young side relatively speaking, not necessarily like an overly young player, but younger, I suppose. So big frame, not hulking frame, as Drew said, but you're going to get a lot out of his size. And the big points of emphasis are more, or excuse me, less on the physical stature and more on the athletic testing. This is an extremely athletic offensive lineman. He might be a little bit twiggy. I, I mean, I don't see it, but there are I have seen that kind of people taking shots saying he needs to gain more muscle. I don't really see that as an, as a negative for him. The biggest question marks for me are going to be the footwork just because it's, it's, it's difficult to get your feet underneath you going from college to the NFL, especially if you're going to be starting right away, which I doubt he will have much of an impact on the 2020 season, but so his footwork and then also his ability to understand the playbook and understand kind of what his assignment is because when you're working in that zone blocking scheme, you not only need to be athletic enough to get out in front of the play, but you also need to be smart enough to know where you need to be in order to run that play effectively, which is, you know, it's something that you can teach obviously, but sometimes it's something that needs to be learned as well. Right. I mean, yeah, that, that's the thing too with, with Cleveland. He, he seems like the smart enough guy and he's going to learn from O'Neill. I think those guys are going to get along well. Plus let's keep in mind, he and Alexander Madison were teammates. So uh, yeah. it seems like that's going to, it's he'll really easily uh, assimilate into this Vikings offense. Uh, so I don't think there'll be any issues there. And I don't know if he'll start right away. You know, this Vikings team doesn't have a huge history of putting rookies into the offense right from the get go and letting them uh, take off. But um, maybe offensive tackles different. And of course, Riley reef is a veteran who's been there for a while. 
Uh, Sean Sir, I'm sure he'll be the favorite, at least at left tackle, and maybe at guard. Who knows what the case will be there? But uh, you know, with with Cleveland, like you said, moves around well. Um, I think he's going to be awesome as a zone in the zone scheme as long as the Kubiaks are around. I assume that'll be the case for the long the long haul here with O'Neill and Cleveland. That kind of combination of tackles, you'll want to maximize that as much as possible. Um, you know, I think obviously the strength is going to be sort of the weakness, right? So when you have a guy that's not huge, not uh, a massive lower body compared to others at his uh, position, you know, the uh, initial strike, if you will, at uh, against the defensive end, initial power uh, right off the line of scrimmage is going to be a little bit weaker. But um, again, the moving around and then his pass protection as well uh, is pretty solid too. So moving around, keeping guys in front of him, very good. And that will only improve as well. So it seems like he's sort of more into that modern offensive tackle template uh, as the NFL moves into more and more of a passing league. So some things that he excelled at at the college level that should probably, hopefully, potentially translate directly to the NFL are, and I'm working somewhat off of Jordan Reed's draft guide, by the way. So if you didn't pick one of those up, make sure you go. I think you can still go back and get one of those, right? Um, but anyways, that's what I'm working off of here um, is you can assume that he's going to be able to figure it out. And what I mean by that is the concerns about transitioning in terms of understanding your assignment. This is something he excelled at in college. So he was a nose tackle in high school. Thank you, Jordan Reed, for that tidbit of information. And he was able to translate over to being an offensive tackle and a fair and a damn good one within about four years time. So you can assume that this player will continue to progress and continue to recognize more and more about where he needs to be as he learns and immerses himself within the offense. So to me, the fact that he's only played the position for four years isn't necessarily a knock because of how good he was able to get in four years time. Granted, of course, he played for Boise State. So competition, is it a concern? No, because you're still playing at the highest level of, of college football. But for those of you SEC bias people out there, Big Ten bias, you may have some questions about that. The biggest thing for me that I think will be huge for him playing successfully immediately is that ability to get to the second level, which is a direct direct reflection of that athleticism, right? So on these running plays where Dalvin Cook is able to get off, assuming he is on the field, that is, if, it's, if when he's able to get through that first line of defense and he starts dealing with linebackers and safeties and other defensive backs, that's where Ezra Cleveland excels. He's able to get out in front because he's fast, and he's able to hold his ground because he has great leverage and an excellent anchor. And that takes a combination of strength, speed, size, and just understanding of the position. And those are a couple of traits yeah. where you can see those directly translating for this player. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Athleticism is the big plus here. Um, also, we mentioned how smart he is, right? I think he's disciplined, too, and not... Uh, not falling for fakes necessarily. Like he'll probably get bull rushed more than he'll get beat by some finesse move uh, in the pass rush game. Like I think that looking at his frame, looking at what his strengths and weaknesses are, he's going to get bull rushed by some of those big freaks that are both quick and fast at defensive end or at, at the outside linebacker position, rushing the passer. So that's where he's going to get beat. And that happens to every tackle in the league. Uh, that's right. not, something that would be unique to him. I guess Brian O'Neill was beat like twice the last two years, but most offensive tackles get beat semi, you know, once or twice a game uh, based on like a bull rush like that, that as offensive tackles get smaller and trimmer over time due to the 
modern movement in the in the football in the football sport in the game right <laughs> uh that's what i'm trying to say something like that uh so yeah i, I he is a perfect match with brian o'neill uh, i think the next step really to me is going to be how the vikings proceed like is the kubiak tandem going to be the regime offensively moving forward past 2020 because uh, that if that signal i mean that zone scheme Right. That's the huge heavy run heavy offense. Right. Which is still, I think it works for him because it's zone, but I still would like to showcase the pass protection more, which means I, I, I like a pass heavy offense. That's most efficient in 2020 and beyond. I want to see that better because I think the Cleveland O'Neill tandem at tackle can be really, really good long term for pass protection. And if Kirk, I don't know if Kirk's going to be the guy. I don't know who is that quarterback, but I think whoever it is will be set two, three, four five years from now with those two guys on the bookends. So a lot of these questions of, uh, of kind of how Ezra Cleveland will influence the Vikings are thinking more long-term, right? I, I haven't heard either of us talk about this season yet. And I think that's kind of a fair question to close out this segment with is, do you expect any type of impact from Ezra Cleveland this year, or is this a red shirt NFL year uh, for this player? I think, He'll start the year on the on the uh, on the bench. I mean, and I don't mean that in a negative way to um, somehow diminish my expectations for his career. I just think if you have Reef, longtime veteran, not a horrible left tackle by any means, and you have Brian O'Neill has been exceptionally efficient in right. two seasons, it's tough to get him in there, right? And I don't want him to be playing guard when he's That's projects the a pretty here. solid tackle. Uh, he projects a pretty solid tackle. I don't want him getting mixed in at the guard position. Um, all that quickly and and kind of forgetting, if you will, with his uh, what he does at tackle. So I would rather sit him back, have a reliable option as your third tackle, because chances are either you're going to need it at some point <laughs> or O'Neal will have some sort of injury. And then you can have bring him in and have very little uh, drop off in production there, if you will. So that's kind of what I want. And then it doesn't appear that Reef is going to be a long term answer at tackle right. beyond this season. Might play a season or two later, but. It's, I mean, this is a pick for Cleveland to be the uh, quote-unquote left tackle of the future. And so you see the quarterbacks all the time. They don't start right away. Um, I think this is a case where you keep him on the sideline. If you need to play him because of an injury, you do it. But keep him there. And, uh, you know, you start the year with Reef and O'Neal at your tackles. And then kind of stick with, I think, Elfline at guard right now, Bradbury. And then Drew Samia maybe at right guard uh, and go from there. So I think that... Ultimately, the best case scenario for his career is maybe about 30 snaps this year. Like check in for the last 15 snaps or so of a couple games that are out of reach just to give him an idea of what that offensive tackle position looks like at the NFL level. Okay, so that's what I think would be the best case scenario. I don't think that's going to happen because we're talking about an NFL season that is going to be dealing with not just injuries per usual, but also the coronavirus, too. So, to me, I see him getting on the field as a necessity, not necessarily pushing Reef yeah. for time, right? The other option, then, is the guard position and being able to have, quote, your best five offensive linemen on the field at once. The Vikings have tried this before now with Mike Remmers. Remmers. Tried to get their best five on the field, right? That's the goal, best five on the field. And it makes sense on theory. And, hell, it makes sense on Madden, too. It does not make sense in the NFL. It does not work. So I would prefer 
for him to be studying his long-term position as opposed to playing a different position and having to adapt as a sophomore. Because we've seen what has happened to Pat Elfline, and granted there's an injury mixed in there that hasn't helped him either, but his career has been a nonstop flux of, am I going to be center? Am I going to be a guard? What do I need to do with my footwork? How much more of the playbook do I need to know? I would prefer if the Vikings handled this delicately, given their success with the left tackle position in drafting, and how the only success story in the last couple decades are Bryant McKinney and, or excuse me, not even Bryant McKinney, Matt Khalil for a year. And Brian McKinney was solid. That guy was good. Was he, but he was a right tackle, wasn't he? For most of his tackle. career? Load Holt okay. was, your, was your right tackle, I think you're thinking. That's right. Okay, that's right. <laughs> how could I, Load Holt was good, too. How could I have possibly forgotten about Phil Load Holt? Um, anyways. 340, just yeah. so much humanity. Anyways, I prefer Ezra Cleveland giving the opportunity here as a spot starter, a fourth starter. I do not like the idea of him playing guard just to get him on the field as a rookie. Yeah. I don't think that does him any good long term. And ultimately, I, I do think that we need one more year to evaluate Pat Alfland, too. I know he's the problem right now entering into this season. Everyone's clamoring for who's going to replace him. Well, let's talk about who's going to replace him like week six, because the third year can be a turn year. I'm not ready to replace Elfline with Cleveland if you truly believe that Cleveland is your left tackle of the future, and I do believe that's what this pick is, then he shouldn't be playing guard. He should be learning right. how to play left tackle, or you should move Riley Reef over to guard and start Cleveland immediately, which, again, I don't feel comfortable with that really either. The, that, that's the one option that I could say, okay, if you really wanted, if you felt this guy's ready to go as a rookie, which, that, looking back to 2018, Brian O'Neal, I think he played – the second game of the year is when he first started playing. He was ready. So maybe that's the case with Cleveland. And if that's the case, play him at tackle instead of guard. Yeah. Uh, I want him. If he's going to play, don't get him in there at guard. Get him in there at tackle. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. Take it. You know, approach this delicately because left tackle is perhaps the second most valuable position in, in the sport. But especially the case if your quarterback is Kirk Cousins. Absolutely. I 100% agree with us with that. And, uh yeah, give us your give us your thoughts on Ezra Cleveland. How how do you think the Vikings should direct his career, if you will? Because there are a lot of paths here, and there isn't necessarily a wrong answer. There's just historical precedent to suggest that there is a wrong answer here because Vikings have that sort of PTSD of what's happened in the past, and I don't blame you. So give us your thoughts. Uh, let us know in the comment section below. <laughs> exactly exactly thank you leave us your comments on ezra cleveland or anything that we've talked about today um on the D daily norseman below um as always you can find us on itunes stitcher google play spotify uh anywhere else where you listen to your podcast make sure to check out the climbing in the pocket network um every one of those guys is producing content and both audio uh written video all kinds of different formats so check that out if you haven't already and, yeah, we will be back next week, uh, hopefully talking about something other than Dalvin Cook. But I imagine that conversation may, in fact, continue given the circumstances right now. Um, and we'll continue our prospect analysis, I believe, with Cameron Dantzler is up next um, on the list. So uh, that is the game plan for next week. Thank you, as always, for listening. And we will catch you guys next week. Oh.